Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitkavich, and this is a podcast where readers can discover debut authors. If you like what you hear here, check out daybeautiful.net for more author interviews and book recommendations. You can also follow us on social media at Day Beautiful on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Today's guest has had her work appear in or forthcoming in numerous journals, including BuzzFeed, Boulevard, Lit Hub, The Writer's Chronicle, and The Kenyan Review. She is a Kenyan and Sewanee fellow and a narrative artist from Meow Wolf, Denver. She is an urban native of Apache, Chickasaw, and Cherokee descent. She was raised outside of Denver, where she currently lives with her partner and her stepchildren and her extremely fluffy dogs. Her debut novel, White Horse, is out now. Please welcome Erica T. Worth. Hey, Erica, how are you doing today? Wonderful. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm completely honored. So, um, and I'm I people can't see, but I'm wearing my Megadeth T-shirt. So yes, yes, you are you are always fashionable. This is now the third time I've met you. This is virtual, but we've met each other twice. Uh, you came into Tattered Cover where I do events to chat with some booksellers, and then you hosted Angie Cruz or you moderated Angie Cruz. And now I'm excited to finally talk to you about your book in depth, uh, White Horse. Tell people what it's about. Yeah, you know, in short, White Horse is a indigenous literary horror novel, but in slightly longer, <clears throat> it is about a woman named Carrie um, who loves heavy metal and she loves um, horror, both the fiction and the uh, and the film, and specifically Stephen King and Dave Mustaine, and. Um, she despises her mother because she believes that her mother abandoned her when she was two days old <clears throat> and her super sweet, um, well-intentioned white cousin, Debbie finds this ancient bracelet, um, that had belonged to her mother. And the minute Carrie touches it, her mother's ghost begins haunting her and this monster invades her dream. So she decides, well, um, uh, perhaps I <clears throat> will find out what happened to my mother after all. And, you have you know written a lot you've published before and you haven't always written horror though is that correct no no this is my first horror book why the shift yeah what 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 about horror did you say i'm gonna write a horror novel (laughs) yeah you know and i also um write sort of like about craft i write for the Mm -hmm, writers chronicle mm -hmm. i write for buzzfeed because i'm trying to boost other writers and definitely indigenous writers and one of the things I write a little bit about is that literary isn't a genre. It's a series of conventions, right? Depth of theme, um, complex characterization, um, and attention to, to form and, and um, language. And so for me, I when I was a kid, <clears throat> I was a super, super, super nerdy kid. I Someone tried to give me a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird, and I just wondered where the dragons were. Mm-hmm, I was very confused. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't have a ghost or a spaceship or... Um, you know, an elf in it, I was not interested. And um, I came from a kind of brutal environment where my father was a, an alcoholic and he was violent at times. And I went to a rugged little school um, right outside of Denver called um, Clear Creek in Idaho Springs, uh, Colorado. And I loved that escape, right? I loved the idea of a portal to another world. And, but I was, you know, a sharp kid. And uh, someone told me you could get a thing called um, a doctorate in uh, creative writing and literature, which I did not know. And so it's like, okay, well, I'm really not suited for a normal job. And this writer thing, it seems like, you know, it can take a while to pay off or, you know, it can never pay off enough at all. So I'm going to do this. And so I became a creative writing professor. And what they do, especially when I went, is iron out any feeling that, you know, 
anything that involves the things I so loved as a kid are literary. And I was a serious, you know, young person and I wanted those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to have depth of theme. I wanted to pay attention to language and form. And in fact, my first books are books of poetry because I cared about language so much. But when it really came down to it, A, like I said, I realized those conventions can apply to any genre. It doesn't matter if it's the subject of a dying marriage or a a cop. And B, I missed my dorky things. I just missed those dorky things. And horror also allowed me a way to um, address the dark subject matter that I had when I wrote Realism, but in a way that was much more doable in terms of audience acceptance. And, you know, if I had written small, obscure postmodern collections of short stories like Buckskin the rest of my life, and that's really was my jam, I would have done that. But I think I did want more. I valued story. I valued structure. I missed those nerdy things. And so I came back. And you talked about books of poetry. You've had other uh, works of fiction. And I'm asking this because I asked you this in person, you know, not recording. Yeah. People always ask me, what's a debut? Because like I'll cover first novels, then I'll cover someone who had a novel and essay collection, but this is their first short story collection. And I always say, it's whatever I feel. I just want to boost authors who I don't think made it or whatever that means. And I asked you, how do you feel about people calling this your debut? Because it's, it's your first uh, major press book, but you've published a lot. Like, And, and, you, and you had a great response, but like, how do you feel? What, what is a debut? Um, I want to be super clear, like Astrophil, who has Crazy Horse's Girlfriend and Bucks and Cocaine, mm-hmm. they're a wonderful small press. So this mm-hmm. is not a diminishment of them in any way, of course. but <clears throat> it feels like a debut for me mm-hmm. because this is kind of, I mean, I, I, I can't deny I cared about story and I cared about structure and I did want um, to end up with the big five. So mm-hmm. um, it does feel like a debut to me. And I've had friends be kind of annoyed for me on my behalf. And I'm like, Let, it's really fine. Yeah. Because it's also a big debut in terms of the genre I've chosen. Although if people are familiar with my work, they'll 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 see I'm coming from a very similar place as I was before. But yeah, the difference between what an indie can do mm-hmm. and what a big five can do is simply astonishing, especially when like big top secret things happen for you and they yeah. decide you're important. So yeah, that that's yeah, it that's does cool. feel like a debut and I'm fine with it. Yeah. And I just want to bring that up because like I said, so many emails, publicists especially will be like, okay, this person published these chat books. Can you still cover them? Like, yeah, whatever. Right, We're right. just trying to make sure good writing gets into the hands of readers. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned you were wearing a mega death shirt. You like nerdy things growing up. Uh, was writing horror was like when you sat down to write this book, White Horse, was it, did it feel easier in a way? Because you like returned to something you loved? You know, it was a very weird process. It was a collection of short stories called White Horse Love about mm. the White Horse Bar and people coming in and out of the White Horse Bar when I, in my 20s, which is a old Indian bar that just closed in Denver, right? Um, and then it changed. And then I tried to Frankenstein it into a sort of <clears throat> jumbled postmodern, I'm doing air quotes for people mm-hmm. who can't see, thing. And in all honesty, Buckskin Cocaine was intentionally postmodern, right? Like I took the tactics of poetry, um, the form of poetry, and I applied to them con- to the content of prose very intentionally. That's not what White Horse was. It was a monster. Mm-hmm. And so when I finally realized um, that I was reading more horror than anything, that this was the thing that I loved, it took a long time. It wasn't easy initially. But once I decided to make it a horror novel, <clears throat> it was easier. What was hard was 
getting people and it, it's not a guarantee and it's not a big thing if you don't, but to feel fear on the page, that is actually very, very hard to make people feel that emotion on the page. It's like being funny in poetry. Yeah. Yeah. And because I always find it interesting people, I, I've started to read horror comics more than I don't really read a lot of horror prose, to be honest with you. It's just, right. it's, it is just different. And, and the comic I, I've started to realize like, you know, with a visual um, aid, it, it's, I, I like to be scared and maybe I need to finally read more horror. Um, well, it's a gateway thing. drug, you know yeah. that, right? You're in the marijuana of, uh, <laughs> of genre. Um, then I guess I'm the cocaine, but I think, um, you know, Stephen Graham Jones, I was asking him mm-hmm. like a number of years ago, cause he made that switch and he is like beyond Shane Hawk and Violet Castro, the only horror writers who are adult, who are indigenous besides me. Right. And Stephen had made that switch from realism to horror. And I was like, Stephen, you know, tell me an author that you think is, um, um, really, really good, a book that you think is like crosses that bridge between like what you think is literary horror. And he said it was, I think it's called an experimental film mm. and it's just so good. You know, sorry, my dogs um, need, no need in and out at all times. The day so. beautiful podcast is very casual. Trust me. <laughs> um, we love dogs in the background. Oh, then yeah. we'll have <laughs> and, and, and you, you know, you, you were born and raised outside of Denver. You still right. live in the area, but you um, have taught, in the Midwest and we'll get to that. And I get, but what I want to talk about is like the love of Denver. Not everyone who lives places writes about where they live. Why write? And and your book features very specifically like Denver landmarks. What is it about Denver? What is it about your community that you wanted to write about? I don't really understand writers who don't do that. Mm. I think it's a matter of craft to me, not even just content or politics. Um, Although I suppose there's some politics too. I'm indigenous. I'm an urban Indian. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, put down roots here. My family's put down roots here. And before that they were in Houston, which at the time was a, a fairly large urban Indian community and still is if you encount indigenous Mexican people um, of which I am also, but um, Denver, you know, it, it's to me going back to craft when you're writing about where you're from, or at least where you've been a long time, you are able to sketch in the details and the richness and the depth in terms of the smallest parts of your prose of your language in ways that you can't otherwise. And, the, and a lot of the writers I admired, like um, Stephen mm-hmm. King, Maine, yeah. um, he set a few things in Boulder. And so it's a matter of craft to me. The other part of it is White Horse is about a dying Denver. It is a Denver that is absolutely disappearing. And I wanted to kind of pay a little homage to it. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, being indigenous, being urban Indian. Um, Stephen Graham Jones is someone you mentioned who's an indigenous horror writer, but I feel like there's not a lot of, uh, not mainstream, but like a lot of indigenous writers are overlooked almost still. Do you feel that way? I have spent 20 years with my tiny microphone um, trying to make that not the case. I Mm -hmm. think that people keep saying indigenous fiction is having a moment and I really hope it's not a moment. The same thing happened in the late nineties, early aughts, and then it just became one. And I'll be, um, goddamned if I let that happen again. And this is why I boost other native writers and writers in general, because I care about writing and I care about writing. I love, but I think that what's happening now is people, instead of imagining that there's this one authentic Indian check mark um, to talk about all Indians to all white people. Yeah. And maybe a lot of us come from very wildly different areas. Like 
V. Castro is a Mexican indigenous horror writer. Um, she is from, her family's from two different parts of Mexico, the same place some of my family's from, which is Northern Mexico. And then I believe she said Oaxaca as well. And she's, her, her themes are clearly indigenous and she would not fit the, you know, from a reservation kind of stereotype that, or not stereotype, I want to be clear, that's not a stereotype, that's mm -hmm. real for some people, but she would not fit the singular um, series of commandments um, that were important to, to Native American writing in the early aughts and, and in the 90s. And I really like that. I think it's changing. So I like that. I like that lots of us can do lots of different things and come from lots of different places at once. Yeah. Have you experienced like the check mark? Like, oh, we're going to feature Erica T. Worth because of X, Y, and Z. Did you feature pushback with your writing ever? Um, more than anything, I remember with Crazy Horse's girlfriend, <laughs> um, people just assumed <clears throat> that I was from a reservation and assumed that Idaho Springs is on a reservation. And I'm like, it is not. <laughs> it is it is right outside of Denver. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, we all receive pushback about our, our work. Um, and I've definitely had people like I remember years ago, I had an agent say, oh, I'm really interested in this, but why don't you focus on these characters from the reservation? And I, and I said, you know, that's not, that's not cool. I I'm not only is it not cool of you to ask, but it's not cool of me to do, and I'm not going to do it. You know, my family has been urban for generations. Some of them are from, like I said, Northern Mexico mm -hmm. and came up and they were Apache. And then some, my, the rest of my family is Chickasaw and Cherokee. And they're of some black descent. So this is not where you want to be mm -hmm. in the 1800s if you're free. And you, they both moved to Texas and combined into their own unique communities, like what was happening in Minneapolis, LA, Chicago, lots of different places. And I, I like being urban Indian. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. So have you seen a lot of urban Indian stories and media and literature? Like did, growing up, did you like see yourself in on screen on the page? I didn't see. No, the only thing I saw of any natives. Um, now, granted, my family at times was participating in Native American church in powwow. Mm -hmm. But um, and I consider myself NAC. But um, no, I didn't even see other natives in, oh, okay. on the screen or in um um, or in books. And someone tried me, tried to give me a copy of, um, gosh, what's his name? He was a KKK leader mm -hmm. and he wrote the little tree, the something of little tree. And they tried to give me a copy of it. And I remember thinking, this doesn't seem right. This seems creepy. And it was. And so it wasn't until college I encountered sort of the modernist, um, native American writers and Scott Momaday and Leslie Mormon Silco, and then graduate school where it was, you know, people like Louis Herdrich and, mm -hmm. um, and I would say Louis approaches, and, and so did Alexi, approach urban Indian issues at, at certain times. Um, but for years, I was saying to agents, you know, I'm a different thing. I'm urban. This is why I'm different. And they weren't, you know, I they weren't listening. Or if I got an agent, um, the editors weren't listening until Tommy Orange came around and really kind of made it a thing, you know. And I remember this uh, white lady in uh, ten, the Tin House Workshop saying to me very condescendingly, well, you see... Um, he's an urban Indian. And I'm like, I'm an urban Indian. My family has been urban for generations. I, I've been writing about being an urban Indian for years. So did you see a shift after there there came out with Tommy Orange, like with um agents or editors being more willing to publish like indigenous urban Indian type of writers or no? Not initially. Teresa mm -hmm. Melhot, the nonfiction writer, was the only one who came out at the same time 
and they were both doing well and they're doing mm -hmm. well. But um, I think what people wanted was the singular torch to be passed yeah. to Alexi to um, Tommy Orange, not to make an analogy between them in any, no. in any other way. Um, but I, that's exactly when I started writing articles about the diversity of Native American literature. And um, I had a friend who's local, Wendy Fox, mm -hmm, urge mm -hmm. me to do that. She's like, you know, you have a large knowledge base. You have a doctorate in creative writing literature. You've been doing this for a decade and a half. You should start writing and you're going to get paid to do it. So it's nice for BuzzFeed and the Writer's Chronicle, which I had done before, actually. Um, and I, my big my big thing was always like, there is a Native American renaissance and there are many of us and we are different. And I did that until I think I had some impact. And I think Black Lives Matter also had a huge impact on that, too. Definitely. So. Yeah. Yeah. Because <clears throat> I find it interesting. I, you know, with Day Beautiful, I look at, you know, who I've covered and, and what I've, you know, who I've interviewed and, and there is no political agenda behind it. But I've noticed like, like this year happens, there's a lot of Asian American writers I've interviewed. And, I, you know, is that because publishing is trying to overcorrect something or, or fix something or whatever? And I'm always just conscious about what the business side of things what they're doing and why they're doing it. And I'm curious. Well, it was that publishing paid me too. It was embarrassing yeah. because why I wrote an article years ago for um, publishers weekly. And it was, mm -hmm. it was like, they were like, why diverse fiction? And it was such an insulting question. Like justify your existence. And I, and I was like, look, there are good manuscripts, great stories that would make you lots of money. And you're complaining that people don't read and you're complaining that you're, business model isn't working well you know latinx people read latinx people write mm -hmm. publish them they're a huge demographic black women are the largest um within their demographic if you compare it to others educated um demographic in the united states why are you not publishing more books they are readers they have book clubs and i find i think embarrassment plus black lives matter plus um enough pressure right because of those things yeah. plus just pure unadulterated logic made them finally go oh gosh yeah maybe maybe this is dumb maybe mm -hmm. we should um publish lots of different people after all yeah and you know outside of writing outside outside of writing fiction your horror novel white horse um you you mentioned like writing for publishers mm -hmm. weekly and other outlets and then you're also you you teach your professor What's your focus outside of actually writing? Like you kind of touched upon it, but like, what do you, what interests you? You know, it's funny because I have thought about this a lot and it's a tragic answer because in some ways um, I am truly, um, and I've had to be because I don't come from a background. I come from a semi-middle-class background. My parents were poor. I grew up in a poor environment. I didn't know any other writers. So I had no idea what I was doing and I had to be hyper-focused on being a writer. But yes, I do care um, about being an urban native person. I just went to an, an indigenous fashion show. Mm. Um, I love being back in Denver because um, I have access to urban Indian culture and I, and I enjoy that. Um, I do, I you know, was raised in the arts. My mom was a dance teacher, so I mm -hmm. love dance. I love music. I was more of a hip hop and indie guy. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, Megadeth and Metallica and all the heavy metal bands are around me all the time. So I've come back around to loving it. So I go to some concerts selectively, but yeah. I don't go to a ton. Um, and of course I spend a ton of time with my mom and my niece, um, who are here. So yeah. those are my interests. Yeah. I always ask that because it's like, you know, so many writers are professors who teach writing and then, you know, 
that doesn't pay enough. Publishing doesn't pay enough. So then you have to hustle and write freelance. Yeah. And, you know, we're human. You know, I'm not a writer. I'm just a guy who talks to people. But like the hu- the humanity of writers is what interests me because I feel like, especially even in this interview, I caught myself like I'm trying to have you answer like these like big questions that like, you know, about publishing. And, and I feel like that gets put on and I'm not even trying to do it, but it just happens naturally because every other interview I read is kind of like that, you know, like it. Um, I like to think I'm a funny guy and I like to think I have lots going on. You know, I, I love my dogs. I love horror film. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and, you know, I will read anything. I read the plot recently, which is literary fiction. I read mm-hmm. Cruz's book. Um, but, you know, I have to say, like, in some ways, I probably I, I'm a heady person and I like the big questions, so I don't mind it, you know? Yeah. And then um, I, I don't know how in depth we want to get on this, but, but we talked about it, you know, a few weeks ago, just about like you being a professor in the Midwest, but living in Denver. We don't have to go too into specifics, but like mm-hmm. for people who don't know how, like, being a professor works how are you managing that right now it's it's a, i'm really not in a way because you know i'm remote <laughs> and i fought yeah. for it and now they're fighting back really hard um and luckily what's happening for me with the writing is more contracts are potentially coming my way and because i don't want to go live in the rural midwest again how it works is and it's worse if you're a millennial and it's going to be worse for gen z unless they you know, throw cars around on the streets. And I think they, I guess they should, you know, and they're seem ready to, cause they're Gen X's kids. Right. Um, and we were apathetic, but mad and now they're just mad, you know, mm-hmm. but um, how it works is you go into tremendous debt. You either get an MFA um, or I've noticed a lot of people of color have a PhD instead in creative writing because historically, right. Most of these creative writing jobs just did not go to people of color. Mm. And so um, you had to have that extra, Hey, I matter kind of thing. And it's also kind of miserable because with the MFA, um, the master's in fine arts and creative writing, um, half of the jobs go to people who did their MFA at Iowa, half of the creative writing jobs. Those stats are old. They might be different. They might be worse. They might be better. But it is harder to get into that MFA program than it is to get into Harvard Law. And um, it is a lot of people who come from very, very, very wealthy backgrounds are the ones who get into it. So it's a very unfair and weighted thing, which I'm glad I didn't know. (laughs) Um, But um, you if you get an MFA and you get books out um, and now there's the the creative writing Ph.D., you go on the job market. A lot of state money now goes to corporations and not um, universities and colleges. So there are fewer tenure track jobs and a lot of those institutions have bloated um, budgets for administrators, right? So that's problematic. They hire um, adjuncts, right? Um, And so you're in like $150,000 debt, $300,000 debt, and you go out for those five tenure track jobs. And it's really unfair and it needs to change um, radically. Um, And then when you're in this this debt, right? And then if you get the job, you know, you're often consigned to living far away from your community. And if you're of color, that's hard. That is just, it is. Um, and you, you know, you're in a department where <laughs> microaggressions are just, just, yeah. you just know, um, and, um, and outright aggressions. And um, it's supposed to be so great, but you come in at $45,000 a year and probably $40,000 of credit card debt. And again, like these days, like 300,000, so 300,000 of, school debt. And so I don't mean to punch a hole in this picture. It's just that people should know what they're getting into. And it doesn't mean they shouldn't do it if that's what they love, but you can write kids books. 
you know, I have some friends who are experimental writers Mm -hmm. and what they do on the side is write kids books and you can make good money making kids books. So there are other routes. There are other routes to being a writer and having time to write and putting your writing to work. Yeah. Did you mention not, not to, not to correlate these two ideas, but I think we talked about what you're writing. Does someone like say you should write a middle grade book? Is this something that I'm making up or no? No, not at all. No, no, you're totally not making it up. I I do have a kid's book coming out. I tried my hand there and then um, Random House um, slash Penguin reached out to me and said, hey, you know, would you like to write a spooky middle grade? And so I've written some pages and my agent and I are going to revise them. And um, I will, I looks like that's moving forward because in the end, I, you know, I can't count on my job definitely staying remote. Mm -hmm. And on top of it, part of me is like, you know, maybe I should just try to do the writing. So, yeah, well, I'm curious because I'm fascinated with like middle grade uh, kid spooky books. Um, How does your brain do it? Like, is it, is it completely different? Like, I mean, because how spooky can you get? (laughs) Yeah, I thought about that a lot because when I was growing up, like, basically they were like, hey, um, get the hell out of the house and see you later. And I was like ripping trees apart and like mm-hmm. throwing them. And so this is not in time in which my parents were concerned about what I read. Yeah. They were like, yeah, she likes to read, you know, like, and they, and they read um, because it was more the norm. They were from the silent generation. They had me later. Right. So um, they read and I read, but I read all the time to the point where they would tell me to stop it and do my math homework, which mm-hmm. I did not. And um so I decided, you know, if I was going to write, I tried my hand at like a crimey-ish um, uh, middle grade. It was ba- bad. It was garbage. And that was years ago um, when I first started thinking about, you know, I don't know if this remote thing, how long it'll last because yeah. it's always fight. And so um, then I started reading speculative um, YA in middle grade that I knew I would enjoy because I, you know, I am not seven. And I'm not 18 and I'm not 12. And I feel like people, this is just how I feel. I think you should read what you want to read. I'm not a snob. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. when people complain about what people read, I think that's really crappy. Um, but at the same time, I think that seven-year-olds should have books geared for them. And yeah. 16-year-olds should have books that are written for them. So I started reading the books that I would enjoy. And then I went back and read, you know, Goosebumps and stuff like that. because that was And it was just fun. They're a quick, fun read. They're like yeah. a comic read. And then I thought, I thought a lot about like, okay, what would I, I have to take the F-bombs out for the most part, although Random House said I didn't absolutely have to. Uh. Uh, Yeah, I was like, that's interesting. Uh, (laughs) And I think we talked a lot about how themes of love and romance are what demarcate young adult, even if it's your, like, it's an ace book, right? Your, Your main character's ace in some ways, it still revolves around that subject matter and more family dynamics, which is what I'm interested in anyway, are more what middle grade revolves around. And so I am trying my hand, you know, and I'm enjoying it because it is a way I've, I've learned as somebody who's jumped from poetry to short story, to the novel, to the nonfiction article. um, And even that varies from like Buzzfeed to the writer's chronicle, right. That I kind of enjoy, you know, new forms And it's the same with like TV writing. I love to do TV writing and I've been practicing and practicing and I I need to, after all this is over, I need to like read all of my, my Hollywood Bible and stuff like that, because I enjoy new forms and that, that I realize this is, is how it works for me. So. Well, that's exciting. And yeah. Uh, I love the idea of people who mess, not mess with form. Yeah. Mess with form, play with it. And totally. And 
you know, you talk a lot about like what genre, literary fiction, right? Um, air quotes for that as well. Um, realism, postmodernism. I feel like it's like there's so many things you can do. Like you can write like a realism horror book or not. Or yeah. Anyway, I'm just rambling about about. No, horror. no, you're totally right. Like in Cynthia Palaya, for example, she's a I think indigenous Puerto Rican writer. Um, she writes poetry and she writes horror poetry, which to mm. me, my brain just breaks around that still. It's like, how go? Um, yeah. and she writes crime books and she writes horror books and they're adults. So I, I think, you know, they're, they're writers doing all kinds of things like this. So, yeah. As someone who likes to like jump from genre, jump from form, do you, you we kind of touched upon what you like to read, but what have you been reading lately? What's on your mind? Well, um, I cannot deny, I love uh, Cynthia Moreno-Garcia. I love Mexican Gothic. I know people are divided on it and I'm mm -hmm. not, I love it. Um, I love Stephen Graham Jones because he's my indigenous brother from another mother. And mm -hmm. he's just a, you know, a weird guy and his books are weird and he's fun to read because they're weird and they're just dense and strange. Um, Grady Hendrix is somebody that I could read um, until I'm dead. Like he could produce a book every three months and I'd read it, never read mm -hmm. anything else. So I'm glad he doesn't do that. I think Ring Shout by P. DeJelly Clark is probably the most brilliant um, horror novella I've ever read. Um, it addresses themes of racism in ways that are so organic and so visceral and so smart. And he's also a professor. Um, um, I think the book that I wish everybody would read would be Black Sun by Rebecca Roanhorse because she has changed Native American fiction in a way that is indescribable because what she does is instead of imagining where we're at now, which is useful and valuable. She thinks about where would we be if colonization wouldn't have happened? And when you read Black Sun, it's like this ticket into this magical version of life a thousand years ago. And you're just walking around the streets of Mayan territory, going to a restaurant. And all I can think about is I just want that simple moment. And mm. um, the other literary sci-fi novel um, that I think I wish everyone would read would be The Salt Line by Holly Goddard Jones. It's a dystopia, but it's like not entirely dystopic. And it's about a world in which there are these sort of glassed in, um, you know, communities. And when people leave those communities, there's this mutant bug that will like rocket into you. And you have to like, if you decide to tour outside of your bubble, mm -hmm. you have to like put a thing on you and immediately suck your flesh out, have the balls to like, just suck that, you know, bug out. And it's brilliant. And I, I it's another one. I, I don't know why people don't, don't read the salt line because it's amazing. Thank you so much to Erica T. Worth for joining the Debutiful podcast to talk about her debut novel, White Horse. If you're in Denver, if you happen to be in Denver and you're listening to this before November 3rd, we are doing her book launch at Tattered Cover, where I run events. So please come on down to her book launch and definitely catch her on tour. She is one of the funniest people I've seen talk about books in real life. You can find her on the internet at ericatworth.com and on Instagram and Twitter at ericatworth. You can find Day Beautiful at daybeautiful.net and at daybeautiful on all social media. As always, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful.